What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. The world has been absolutely hectic over the last few weeks. So for today's episode, I decided to break down the newest and most interesting topics. I dive deep into how Russia's invasion of Ukraine is impacting the global sports world, the hypocrisy of FIFA, Chelsea's $4 billion sale, Calvin Ridley's suspension, and Major League Baseball's new deal with Apple. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. It's the one tech product that I wear 24-7. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone, and it automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on a run anymore. You can then analyze your activity levels in the app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you're just wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. And Whoop is now offering 15% off their new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is Underdog Fantasy. It's the best fantasy sports product on the market. And with the Philadelphia 76ers hosting the Brooklyn Nets tonight, you can win major cash prizes through their pick'em game. Will James Harden go off against his former team? Will Kevin Durant outscore him? Go to underdogfantasy.com, pick over or under on Harden and Durant's points lines, and you can triple your money if both picks hit. But here's the best part. Sign up with code POMP, P-O-M-P, and Underdog will double your initial deposit with up to $100 in bonus cash. Next up is Athletic Brewing. When it comes to non-alcoholic beers, Athletic Brewing changed the game. Their beer tastes amazing, and since each can is only 25 calories, 5 carbs, and made with organic grains, I can now enjoy the taste of a great beer without compromising my sleep or performance. But here's the best part. Athletic Brewing is now offering my listeners 20% off their first order with code JOE20. That's J-O-E-2-0. So as you prepare to stock the fridge for March Madness, now's the perfect time to buy a refreshing, great-tasting beer without the consequences. All right, let's get into this episode. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right. What's up, everyone? I hope you're having a fantastic day today. We got a lot to talk about. The world has gone insane between the invasion of Ukraine by Russian troops, Calvin Ridley, the Falcons wide receiver has been suspended for sports betting, Apple 
has gotten into sports, streaming, buying live rights, Chelsea's up for sale, and a bunch of other stuff. So it's just going to be me today. We're going to talk through a few different things. Let me know if you enjoy this type of episode, and maybe I'll do some more in the future. But let's kick things off with what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. For those that are living under a rock, Russia has invaded Ukraine. And this has been happening for 10 or 12 or 14 days now, about two weeks. And the general thought behind this, right, is there was a memorandum signed, I believe it was 1994, between a few different countries, Ukraine, Russia, the US, UK, and they made a commitment to Ukraine. And essentially, boiled down in an overgeneralized sense, it was to give up their nuclear weapons that they had gotten when the Soviet Union broke up, right? So when the Soviet Union dissolved a few years earlier, I think it was three or four years earlier in the early 1990s, Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, and Kazakhstan each split up the nuclear weapons. So these countries went to Ukraine and said, hey, give up your nuclear weapons and we will protect you. We will refrain from violence against you unless it's in, in your defense. We will not band together and attack you. We will provide assistance and all this other stuff if nuclear weapons are used against you. Recently, President Vladimir Putin and Russia have reneged on that agreement. They essentially tore it up and said, hey, we don't give a crap. And they invaded Ukraine. Now, some people believe that Putin is essentially just trying to recreate the Soviet Union, right? And, and regather some of that land and expand their borders. And he's going to do this again, they think. Other people believe that he is just trying to get an additional barrier from NATO. So for those that don't know exactly what NATO is, it's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's essentially just another group of countries that banded together and agreed to protect each other, right? So they said, if you attack one of us, you attack all of us. And Ukraine is not part of that. But many people believe that Russia is attempting to get another barrier away from NATO, right? So they just want more land protecting themselves. I am not a military strategist. I'm not a geopolitical expert. I will not attempt to act like I know exactly what Vladimir Putin is doing. I don't think anyone in the world knows exactly what Vladimir Putin is doing. But I do think that this has been an extremely interesting time when it comes to what's happening on a global scale. Right? So if you think about Russia, they're the 11th largest economy in the world by GDP. And the US hasn't dropped troops off. Many other countries haven't dropped troops off. What we've been doing is we've been hitting them with sanctions, mostly economic sanctions. We provided certainly some capital and some money to Ukraine, the UK and other European countries have done the same. Hundreds of millions of dollars at this point, if not billions of dollars have been donated for them to get military supplies and stuff like that. But we haven't put boots on the ground and, and gone and helped. We have done essentially that from an economic perspective. We have cut them off from SWIFT. We have frozen their central bank assets. We have started to freeze the assets of anyone, oligarchs in particular, connected to Vladimir Putin. And as a result, the Russian economy is crumbling. So the Russian ruble has been in a free fall for essentially most of the last week. I think it's down over 40% year to date last time I checked. And the chart is just a straight drop. Again, their central bank assets have been frozen and commodities have gone insane. I know that oil has obviously increased a lot. Gas here is now over $6 average, which is the highest of all time. Wheat futures hit an all-time high. Nickel has increased tremendously and a bunch of other commodities. And a lot of this has to do with just the natural supply and demand dynamics, of course. But also a bunch of companies are leaving the economy in Russia. So there's a laundry list of them. Adidas, Amazon, Apple, Ford, there's Snapchat, Sony, Spotify, TikTok, Toyota, Twitter, Nintendo, Nike, Mercedes, HP, Google. All of these have left 
or are leaving partially or in some capacity. So it's had a tremendous effect on the economy, even though we haven't dropped boots on the ground. Now, again, I don't think we need to get too far into exactly what's happening from a geopolitical standpoint or a military standpoint. But I do think the one thing that's clear is like, this is an extreme reminder that war is a very ugly thing with real consequences. Most people that live in these areas want nothing to do with it, right? In Ukraine and in Russia, we've seen protests throughout the world, really, but specifically in those two countries of people who just don't want war, right? They just want peace. They want to live with their family in peace. Again, I'm just hoping for the safety of every citizen that's caught in the middle of the situation. But again, since I focus much more on the sports, the business, the investing aspect of all this stuff, I do think that a lot of interesting things have come off of this. And a few of those things within sports specifically, we've seen organizations take steps to distance themselves from Russia. And some of this I think is good. And some of it I think is, I don't want to say useless because that may not be the right word, but is much less effective, right? So a few examples of this Formula One, they have the Russian Grand Prix every year in Sochi. They not only said they aren't going to do it this year, but they took it out of there for good. They said, we're terminating our contract. Maybe it comes back later on, who knows, right? But the contract has been terminated. Again, maybe that's not fair to the citizens that they don't want it, but ultimately these are things that are done. One, they don't want to associate with exactly what's going on there. And two, they want to hurt the economy. So changes are made where the invasion is stopped within Ukraine. So I get that. Subsequently, Nikita Mazpin, who is a driver for Haas, has been dropped by Haas and he has been replaced. So he lost his job. There's been other ones. Chelsea, Roman, who is the owner, Roman, has been, essentially what happened there is he was attempting to shield the team. He's the owner of Chelsea. He's been the owner for about two decades now. And really what he was trying to do was he was trying to shield the team by putting them in a charitable trust. The UK, the European government said, they're essentially attacking the assets of these oligarchs and attempting to freeze them. So I don't know if people have seen, but there are yachts, basically hundreds of yachts that are taking off for the Maldives and are attempting to get there where they cannot be seized, right? Because there's no extradition for the US or other countries. There was a billionaire, I forget his name right now, but he was renovating his ship or his yacht in Paris, France. And I think it was not supposed to be done for a few months. And he essentially told the captain, get it out of there, go bring it over there so it doesn't get seized. The government saw him attempting to do that and seized it anyways. So most of these people are worried about their assets. And Roman Abramovich, however you say his name, was worried about Chelsea also. So he's owned the club for two decades now, and he wanted to keep the club. He's been a big supporter of them. They've done really well. It's obviously a tremendous asset, not only from a financial perspective, but just kind of the name recognition. And that ended up not being the correct way to shield himself. So then he came out and he said, I'm going to sell it. And he's done a couple things. So He said, this is a direct statement from, I've always taken decisions with the club's best interest at heart. In the current situation, I have therefore taken the decision to sell the club, as I believe this is the best interest of the club, the fans, the employees, as well as the club's sponsors and partners. But that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is this. He said, the sale of the club will not be fast-tracked, but will follow due process. I will not be asking for any loans to be repaid. This has never been about business nor money for me, but about pure passion for the game and the club. More so. I have instructed my team to set up a charitable foundation where all net proceeds from the sale will be donated. The foundation will be for the benefit of all victims of the war in Ukraine. This includes providing critical funds towards the urgent and immediate needs of victims, as well as supporting the long-term work for recovery. So there's a few things to dissect there. For those who aren't specifically interested in soccer or football or Chelsea specifically, 
he has loaned a lot of money to the club. He was loaning a couple hundred million dollars when he first bought the club in 2004, all the way up until 2021. He was even loaning the club $250 million in 2019, $20 million last year. So in total, he's loaned the club about $2 billion of personal money. He has loaned them directly for a variety of things, but essentially it's debt that the club has brought on. He's saying that they will not be required to pay that. Now, I think there's some logistics here or some details or nuance that obviously needs to get worked out through the deal. Who knows if the new owner is required to pay some of this stuff and he gets money back or however it works, right? I find it hard to believe that he's just personally donating $2 billion, right? Especially kind of given the cost of the club and all of that. But that's what he says. This is obviously his level of donations and loans has helped Chelsea a lot. He's donated more money from an ownership standpoint than any of the other big six clubs. And Chelsea has won a lot. They've won five Premier League titles under his ownership, five FA Cups, three League Cups, two Champions Leagues, two Europe Leagues, UEFA Super Cup, and the FIFA Club World Cup. So they've won a lot. He's obviously been a big factor in that. And the fans seem to love him, right? So they're sad to see him go. But I think it's going to be interesting to see who buys this. It's obviously a blue chip asset. He's looking for a $4 billion offer. Most valuation experts or reports I've seen say that the enterprise value of the club is probably worth 3.13 billion, 2.5, somewhere in that range, but certainly less than four. But again, these don't go up for sale a lot. So the Rain Group says that they've already gotten 15 or 20 legitimate bids from groups. They will earn a 1.5% commission from any sale and we'll see what happens. But again, this is something that is a fallout from the Russian invasion, something that we did not see happening. I don't think most people expected. Chelsea to be up for sale. But when it comes to organization specific, I get Formula One withdrawing. I get Chelsea being sold. That all makes sense. The thing that starts to get a little confusing to me, right, is when it comes to FIFA. And maybe this is somewhat of a controversial opinion, but FIFA has banned Russia from all international competition. The IOC, the International Olympic Committee, has done the same thing, right? But when it comes to FIFA specifically, I feel like it's a fair question to ask why they haven't had the same response to other wars, right? Saudi Arabia is dropping bombs in Yemen as we speak, killing people. Israel continues to occupy Palestine. The World Cup is in Qatar, right? And we know what issues they have ongoing there. So I feel like it's a fair question to ask about kind of what double standards being set. We know that FIFA has had a long history of not wanting politics or war, things like that associated with their game. They've literally said that in the past, that they don't want people mixing the two. That's clearly not happening now. So there's this interesting divide happening, right? Of People that think that this is fair, that this should happen, that this makes a difference. And then there's people who think the opposite. And one of the cases that I was looking at the other day, and some people got upset with, but there's nuance, right, is Nike. And Nike came out and said, we're stopping online sales. Everyone just ran with the title, Nike withdraws their product from Russia. And that sounds great. It's amazing. It's a great PR move. It's amazing press. Everyone gets to say Nike's a hero. They don't want to deal with this. But when you start to look at the fine details, Nike withdrew online sales. And the reason why they withdrew online sales is because they couldn't deliver the product. FedEx, DHL, UPS, all these people had already withdrawn their services from the country. So they couldn't get the product to people even if they wanted it. Retail stores were obviously still open. Those weren't being closed or anything like that. So again, there's nuance to all this stuff. Some of it, you can't just take a face value. You have to look a little deeper on. But again, a lot of this is like you're picking and choosing what circumstances in the world matter than others. And I think the situation with Russia is obviously a little more unique 
For those that don't know, Russia is the only country in the world that has more nuclear weapons than us. By far and away, the U.S. and Russia have the most. I believe it's like somewhere between five or six or 7,000 we each have nuclear weapons. And third place has like a few hundred, right? So a big, big, big divide between the nuclear arsenal between the two countries. And again, this is, this is just stuff that makes it more sensitive. So I think there's more to come on the sports side. I don't think this is the last we'll hear about it. This doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon. It'll be interesting to see what happens next, right? Russia is obviously a massive country. They not only control a lot of the oil, right, and supply and make money that way, but they're just a massive economy. And it's tough to figure out exactly what companies are doing the right thing or withdrawing for the right reasons and stuff like that. So this isn't the last we'll hear about it, not only on a global stage, but specifically when it comes to sports. I believe that this is really just the beginning and we'll see what happens next, but it's certainly a story worth following. Secondly, on a somewhat more lighthearted note, but certainly still serious, is Calvin Ridley. So for those that don't know, Calvin Ridley is a wide receiver for the Atlanta Falcons in the NFL. Very good player, has had a few good seasons, and he was caught recently betting on NFL games. So the NFL came out and suspended him for the entire 2022 season and beyond but he can apply for reinstatement after the season. So he's at least suspended. Maybe he appeals it, but it looks like he'll be suspended at least for all of next year. And then he can apply for reinstatement. The case is pretty cut and dry against him, but here's what we know so far. Calvin Ridley downloaded and created an account on the Hard Rock Sportsbook app in Florida in November. So a few months ago, he logged on his phone, downloaded the mobile app for Hard Rock Sportsbook while he lived in Florida, used his real name, and created an account. His account was approved, and then he proceeded to place a few different parlays. He placed a three-team, a five-team, and an eight-team parlay over five different days. So about one week, he placed three different bets, a few different parlays, and the parlays included bets on the Atlanta Falcons, his team. He did bet for them to win, so he wasn't betting against them, but he bet for them to win. And I think the other thing to note that's important relative context to this is that Calvin Ridley was not with the team when he was doing this. So again, that doesn't make it okay. I'm not saying that at all. But ultimately, I think that's important that he was away from the team. He was taking time away. I believe it was for mental health, but he was away from the team. He was at home in Florida and he did this. So the NFL was then alerted by Genius Sports, who is their official sports betting data provider. They're in charge of kind of keeping the integrity of the game, but also providing data and analytics to a bunch of sports betting books. They got an alert that Ridley had placed a bet due to their internal protocols, they reached out to the sports book who confirmed that Calvin Ridley had made an account and placed these bets. Then they alerted the NFL league office. The NFL alerted the Falcons, interviewed Calvin Ridley himself. Calvin was upfront, supposedly admitted to it and said, hey, I did this. I screwed up. He actually tweeted out and said, I bet $1,500 total. I don't have a gambling problem. And then he tweeted again and he said, I couldn't even watch football at that point. And then last one for good measure, he tweeted a third time and said, just going to be more healthy when I come back. Again, I think it's important that Calvin Ridley doesn't become the victim in this situation. For anyone who doesn't know, the NFL makes it very, 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 very obvious to all players that they cannot bet on games before the season. So they send out memos, they give them videos. It's very clear that you are not allowed to bet on games. It's been this way for a long period of time. And even more specifically now, that the league has all these partnerships. He only wagered $1,500 in total. So I think, you know, 
a lot of money, but not a lot of money in the grand scheme of kind of how much he's making. But the easiest way, in my opinion, to think about this is like Calvin Ridley is an employee of the NFL, right? They're a private organization. He is an employee of them. He gets paid very handsomely for doing this, but they have rules. And if you don't follow their rules, you run the risk of getting in trouble, whether you think that is fair or not. And that's exactly what happened. So Calvin Ridley will sit out all of next season. And that means that he will miss or lose an $11 million paycheck next season in salary for betting $1,500 on NFL games. Super unfortunate. But when you look at the flip side of this, right, and say, what are the optics of this? My opinion, they're not very good for the NFL. And the reason of that is because of how they look at other disciplines. So for those that don't know, if you get a DUI, your first offense DUI in the NFL comes with a suspension without pay for three games. The discipline for a first offense PED violation, performance-enhancing drugs, in the NFL is a suspension without pay for four games. And the discipline for a first offense domestic violence incident in the NFL is a suspension without pay for six games. Former NFL running back Ray Rice was literally caught on camera, punching his wife and dragging her unconscious body out of an elevator. And he received a two-game suspension from Commissioner Roger Goodell before the public backlash of the video and everything came out. And then he was suspended indefinitely. My point is that when you add some context to this, Calvin Ridley's 17-game suspension looks slightly out of place, right? 17 games for betting $1,500 on, on NFL games that he wasn't playing in. He wasn't with the team at the time. He was at home on his mobile phone versus someone doing domestic violence or testing positive for drugs or getting a DUI, all things that either hurt people or could potentially hurt people or, in Calvin Ridley's case, mess with the integrity of the game. So I get that, right? Like as a purist, you understand the integrity game is the is at the forefront, right? Domestic violence certainly hurts the image of the individual, hurts the image of the league to a degree. But if games were being thrown by athletes, that certainly changes the dynamic of people watching it also. So I totally get that the integrity of the game is paramount. But if you think about the strategy that the NFL has employed, like this is something that's going to keep popping up. They have gotten billions of dollars at this point from sports books. It's going to be a massive, massive, massive revenue source for the NFL. They've signed official partners. They're doing commercials. They're doing all this stuff. And the NFL has come a long way. They've done a total 180. For those that don't know, again, they, they used to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on lawyer fees, on legal proceedings, on all this stuff, fighting the repeal of PASPA. They didn't want it to get repealed. Paul Tagliabue, the former commissioner, is famous for saying that there would never be a team in Las Vegas, that he says the integrity of the game is at the forefront, that that would ruin everything, that they would never even look at it. Obviously, all of that has changed, right? Some of it, the NFL couldn't control, some they could. But we have a team in Las Vegas. PASPA has been repealed. Many, many, many states, a large percentage of the population now has access to mobile legal sports betting. And the NFL, similar to other sports leagues around the world, has taken advantage of that. They're not going to sit on the sideline. Why? DraftKings and FanDuel and MGM and all these players hand out hundreds and millions and billions of dollars a year in marketing money. So it's been a massive revenue generator. And I think the other thing to look at is like, this isn't all the NFL, right? They're not some greedy enterprise that doesn't share anything. The players get a large percentage of this, right? Essentially, most sports leagues here in the United States split revenue 50-50, we'll call it. Kind of maybe a couple percentage points one way or the other, depending on the league. But the players get about 50% of the revenue when it comes to the major sports leagues. So they're seeing part of this money. Part of this money is going towards them, and they are benefiting from this. And part of that comes with the inability to bet on games. But I think the thing that we need to be careful about is, like, one, the image is obviously something. It's a difficult thing to look at when someone is in the news for domestic violence, and they get six games, and 
Calvin Lee bets $1,500 and gets 17 games. Certainly, I think that's one aspect of it. But the other thing I think a lot about is the United States rushing into this super aggressively and situation in Europe. Europe has had mobile and legal sports betting for a long period of time now. And we're rushing into this now and we are expanding rapidly, super aggressively at the same exact time that Europe is trying to pull back, right? So Premier League clubs are saying you can't advertise with some of these sports bettors. There's national gambling problem ads all throughout Europe in certain areas. And people know that this is a huge problem. And if you talk to anyone that is in Europe today or anyone that works in the industry or anyone who's even just a fan of sports over there, they know that this is something that you don't want to rush into because they're a decade or two decades ahead of this from like a product adaption or or a consumer standpoint, and they're having huge problems, right? So I think this is certainly something that the United States in general, the NFL specifically, needs to be concerned about because this is only going to happen more often. These situations are certainly going to pop up more. I don't know, but I assume Calvin Ridley isn't the only one in the NFL who has ever bet on a game. Obviously, it's not the right thing to do. He knows the rules and you're running the risk of getting in trouble, which he did. But ultimately, I think that this is something that the NFL is going to have to watch much more closely because it's only going to get worse. But thirdly, I want to talk about Apple's new deal with Major League Baseball. So Major League Baseball is in the middle of a lockout right now. Some of the games have already been canceled to start the season. People are upset. Players are upset. Owners are upset. Commissioner Rob Manfred is upset. A lot of people are upset. But they also just announced a deal with Apple, an exclusive streaming rights deal. CEO Tim Cook announced it yesterday at Apple's product event. And what we know so far is that Apple has agreed to stream Two games each Friday night, a doubleheader for seven years straight. So a doubleheader every Friday night of the season, they're calling it Friday Night Baseball, and they're going to do it for seven years straight. It's going to be exclusively on Apple TV Plus, and they're going to be doing a pre and post game show. And then they'll also have MLB Big Inning, which is essentially a live show that has highlights and live look-ins that airs on weeknights. This has been on MLB TV last year, I believe. So it'll continue to be there, but it'll also move over to Apple TV. So Apple TV, for those that don't have it or haven't looked into it, is $5 a month. And you'll have access to these two games every Friday night, plus the MLB beginning. Forbes is reporting that the deal was for $85 million over seven years annually. So that's $600 million, roughly $600 million in total that the MLB is getting from Apple. For some context on that, $55 million of it is in cash, and then the other $30 million of that is in advertising. So they are going to advertise or have committed to advertise $30 million annually with Major League Baseball. So maybe they were going to spend that anyways. Maybe they were going to spend half of it, maybe just a little bit, but they've committed to advertising in addition to the $55 million. And for some context on this, $85 million represents less than two hours of Apple's annual revenue. So Apple is obviously a massive, massive, massive company. And it's just a couple hours of like one and a half hours of their annual revenue. But that aside, I think that what we're seeing is this continued dichotomy between pay TV and streaming and the shift that's happening. For those that don't know, the total number of U.S. households that are paying for traditional cable TV, pay TV, has declined from about 100 million in 2014 to 70 million today. Non-pay TV households is about 56 million today. So there's a gap of about 14 million households. 
And they believe that those numbers are going to crisscross by 2025. So within the next few years, there will be more non-pay TV households than pay TV households. And it's obviously accelerated during the pandemic. People lost their jobs. There was a recession. They were at home. They wanted streaming services. They wanted to watch movies. They wanted to do all this stuff. So they, they cut their cord even more. Channels like ESPN have lost 4% more. TBS lost 8% more of their subscribers over the last year. MLB Network lost 12%. The tennis channel lost 15%. ESPN Deportes down 31%, right? So a bunch of big losers. And just pay TV households have dropped 30% in the last few years alone. But even when you look at it, the the number of households is also increasing. So only roughly 54% of households have pay TV today compared to 82% in 2014. So my point being, there's been this huge drop off in people that are paying for TV. You guys know this already. This isn't big news. But the interesting part is that live sports, MLB and NFL, NBA, college football, basketball, all of this, Olympics, are the only thing that are keeping pay TV around. For instance, Sportico did this chart. You guys have probably seen it by now. But 94 out of the top 100 most watched US TV broadcasts last year were live sports. Football dominated, dominated. There was some basketball mix in there, the finals. But the only non-sporting events, the six non-sporting events, it was the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, Oprah's sit-down with Meghan and Harry, and then there was a few events around the presidential election, some of the debates and the coverage that cracked the top 100. But outside of that, nothing came close to live sports. And for some additional context about just how important live sports are to the bundle, if you look at the cable news just from last month, February 2022, the total viewers for Fox, MSNBC, CNN, et cetera. The top program, which was The Five from Fox, Tucker Carlson was number two, and there's a few other shows there. The top program averaged 3.7 million viewers. The average NFL game last year averaged 17 million viewers. That's nearly five times as many viewers as a primetime show on cable news. The average NFL game. We're not talking about Sunday night football. We're not talking about the Super Bowl. The average game, a one o'clock game, basically, on a Sunday, averaged 17 million viewers compared to 3.7 for the top news program, right? So there's hundreds of news programs. The top one, number one, averaged 3.7. Football averaged 17 million. So again, I think that this is interesting because we're obviously seeing the decline, but the thing that the leagues are chopping at the bit for is that these streaming companies have brought in new demand. Right. And if you just think about natural supply and demand economics here, if supply stays constant, demand continues to increase, the price goes up. Right. So we have ESPN Plus, we have Prime, we have Hulu, we have Peacock, we have Apple TV now coming in. And I saw this number from Rethink Research. And they said that they believe streaming will drive global revenue from sports media rights to $85 billion by 2025. That's a 75% increase to 2018. So there's a lot of questions still to be answered, right? Like how big did the streaming deal get? Amazon's paying $1.2 billion a year for the NFL. Apple is obviously paying $85 million per year for the MLB. Like we mentioned, Peacock is doing some, Hulu ESPN Plus is doing the UFC and others. So there's certainly some degree of like how big can these deals get? How quickly does it happen? How long do traditional pay TV providers hold on? And then at what point do we start to see some carnage? At what point do we start to see, not only these RSNs, the regional sports networks, they're already experiencing it, but some bigger sports networks and some bigger pay TV providers that aren't able to transition to streaming fast enough. Where do we see that happen? 
So again, I think it's going to be very, very, very interesting few years here about what these sports leagues do, because ultimately they're in the scenario where they have the ability to drastically increase revenue off these media deals because the cable TV providers cannot let go. They need them for their business to survive. It's the only thing that's keeping people around outside of live news. It's live news and live sports. And those are the only reasons why people watch cable TV. So if streaming companies come in and start to pay much more money, right? Amazon, their billion dollar deal for the NFL represents 18 hours of Amazon's revenue. They're paying $1.2 billion a year for 15 games. And that's 18 hours of revenue. So literally in one day, they already made back the money that for their NFL deal. And there's some other stuff that goes into it. Obviously, that's not net profit. There's pre and post game shows. There's a bunch of production costs. There's talent, all that stuff that goes into it too. But the general point still stands that these companies have so much money, right? They're technology companies. They're trillion dollar companies. They're tech behemoths. And they have the ability to come in and pay astronomical prices for these deals. Amazon has the distribution. Apple has the distribution. Peacock has the distribution. ESPN Plus has the distribution. So you get to this point where you're these leagues and you try to toe the line for a long period of time. But if the distribution on the streaming side gets just as good or if not better than some of these other places and they want exclusive access, like you're put in a hard situation and the cable providers are put in a hard situation too. So it's one of the reasons why I'm super bullish still on the growth of these sports assets is because when you think about their revenue opportunities, a lot of them are creating new revenue opportunities. We have NBA Top Shot in the NBA. Crypto in general has been an, an incredible new revenue opportunity for a bunch of sports leagues, sponsorships that literally didn't exist a year ago. It wasn't a thing, so they couldn't sell them, and now it's a thing. So they've made a bunch of money doing ancillary things like that, merchandise and ticket sales, and all of that have gone up as well with inflation. But ultimately, media rights are the big driver. It's where they get the majority of the revenue from. And if they can start to drastically increase these things 75%, like these research reports are indicating over the next few years, that's tremendous upside, not only for the publicly traded assets, but the private assets. And what we're going to see is the, these are going to continue to increase in price, right? Their cap supply, there's only 30 teams, depending on the league, and they have the ability to dramatically increase revenue now through some of these other ancillary services. So it's something I'm certainly going to keep my eye on. But again, the sports world, the finance world, the crypto world, none of this is slowing down. This is only getting more interesting by the day. We've seen a bunch of new deals happen over the last few weeks, few days, and so forth. And my guess is that it's only going to continue. All right, everyone, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.